Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, and that you would make us attentive to your voice. Lord Jesus, we have just proclaimed what a powerful name it is. And right now, Lord Jesus, we want to acknowledge the power of your name over everything in our life that troubles us, that threatens us, that creates fear and anxiety in us. And God, would your word come to us this morning and would you remind us afresh who you are? Lord Jesus, we want to encounter you in your word. So come among us by your spirit, we pray. And we ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I wanted to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever had somebody befriend you for the wrong reasons? You know, the friendship begins and you think, oh, they like me. They want to be my friend. And then it goes on a little bit. You're like, no, they don't want me. They want something from me, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I remember years ago, I had a friend call me up. I hadn't talked to him in years. He was a good friend from high school. And he called me out of the blue. And I was so excited. And we we're having this great conversation. I'm like, how awesome. This guy thought of me. And he called me. And about halfway through the conversation, I was like, he wants to sell me life insurance, you know? <laughs> he, he doesn't want me. He wants from something from me, you know? And of course, in a consumer-oriented culture where people are often treated as commodities, we've even developed a name for this kind of relationship. We call it a strategic relationship, one that is transactional, you know? Not because we like them, but because we want something from them. And, you know, I think if we're honest, probably a lot of us in this room have engaged in some of our own transactional relationships, You know, he was a little bit obnoxious. Nobody really liked him. He was a bit of a bore. But you befriended him because he had season tickets to the Lakers, right? Actually, you're like, no, I wouldn't do that this season. Um, (laughs) But ouch, right? It's just the Lakers. Can we just acknowledge as Los Angeles people that the Lakers are painful this year? All right, so let's just leave that aside and move on. But have you ever had that experience where somebody befriended you for the wrong reason, or maybe you befriended somebody else for the wrong reason? And I wonder if you've ever seen the same dynamic play out in your relationship with God. You know, maybe you are doing the right thing, but it's not because you want God, it's because you want something from God. And of course, almost all of us, if you grew up in the church, you grew up kind of with a knowledge of God, you had that moment in your life where you were promising and committing your full self to God in order to get an A on the test you didn't adequately prepare for. That was really important. You know, but, but you, you weren't going to God and committing yourself from God because you wanted God. It was because you wanted something from God. Now, of course, there are those crass and obvious ways in which this plays out. I remember years ago when I was a pastor in Long Beach, there was a church in town that every year on Easter, they would give away some spectacular prize. Uh, They would raffle something off. And so one year, they raffled off a PlayStation 2. Uh, Another year, it was a big screen TV. And then one year, they raffled off a brand new car. And I remember it was a joke around our church staff that you couldn't get any of the pastors to work on Easter because we all wanted to go to that church (laughs) and have our chance with the car, you know. But I wonder if you've seen this play out in your own life. Now, it's not always that obvious. 
You know, I remember uh, years ago, there was a book that came out entitled, I Told Me So. I've always loved that, that, that title. And I think we tell ourselves, yeah, I want God. And uh, I, I want to know God. And I want to study. And I want to read. And I want to pray and commit myself. But if you scratch below the surface, what we really find out is that we want more control over our kids. And we're using God to do that. Maybe we want to feel justified in ourselves, or we want to bolster our political ideology with divine sanction, or maybe we just want to feel morally and religiously superior to other people. And so we can find ourselves following God, engaged with God, not because we want God, but because we want something from God. We want to experience the benefits of following God. Now, if you've ever seen that dynamic play out in your life at all, if I've even nicked the corner of your experience at all, I think you might find yourself addressed in the story that we're looking at today. Because in our story, Jesus has an encounter with some folks who are following him for the wrong reason. And the story picks up in John chapter 6. And, and it, 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 the story picks up just 24 hours after one of Jesus's most famous miracles. By the way, uh, we're going to have uh, five, I think, pieces of artwork kind of like that are going to take us through the story today. And um, I, I'm doing this because, you know, some of you, you like artwork. And, but if that's not you, you know, if you're like not into that sort of thing, you can just listen to the sermon and ignore the artwork. Or if you don't like the sermon, you can just ignore the sermon and pay attention to the artwork, whichever you ever Preferably, you would, you would enjoy both. But so the story picks up just 24 hours after one of Jesus' most famous miracles. And you remember the story, Jesus takes these two sardines and these five meager loaves, which was essentially the lunch of a poor person in the first century. And he transforms the meager offering into this abundant feast. And there are basketfuls left over. And the crowds on that occasion are so dazzled by this display of power that they want to take Jesus and make him king, which is unsurprising because who wouldn't want a king like that, right? They, they, they were looking for a long-awaited Messiah, the son of David, to overthrow Rome. And if you are waiting for a, a, a Messiah that's going to overthrow Rome and establish God's kingdom, why not choose one that, that basically can provide you however much food you want whenever you want it? I mean, I would love that, wouldn't you? Well, John points out, interestingly, that this miracle took, took uh, place just prior to the Passover, and so there are echoes of the Exodus and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in what Jesus was doing. We'll come back to that in a minute. But later that night, after this great feast, there's this mysterious interlude on the water where Jesus tells his disciples to get in the boat and cross over. Jesus sees the crowds away and the sun goes down. And while Jesus' disciples are out on the sea, in the middle of the night, there's this storm. And in the middle of the storm, Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And he speaks this word. He says, ego eimi, I am, which is code language, a not so veiled reference to the divine name. Jesus saying in not so many words, I am the great I am, the God of Israel walking here on the water. 
The same one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush is now appearing to you in your boats. Well, after this crazy experience in the night, the crowds that were fed the day before, get this, the crowds that were fed just the day before, basketfuls and basketfuls left over, as much food as they want, they show up the next day looking for Jesus. And we're going to see this encounter that Jesus has with, this crowd, with these crowds unfold in three acts. Act one is the hungry crowds go frantically looking for Jesus. So look at what it says. Uh, the, the text basically says the, the next day, the crowds, they're, they're searching all over for Jesus. They notice that the boats are gone. They're like, he must have crossed over. So they all get in their boats and they cross over. And I mean, literally hundreds, maybe thousands of them. And then it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, oh, rabbi, when did you get here? <laughs> Do you get the humor in that? It's just me, you know? It's like, oh, I fancy meeting you here. It's like you've been looking for him, you know? But Jesus can see right through him. Jesus can always see right through us. You know, you can feel fool a lot of people all the, you know, a lot of the time, you know, but you can't fool Jesus. Jesus knows what's going on in your heart. And he looks at the crowd and look what he says. Jesus answered him, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He says, you don't want me. You want something from me. You know, you don't want a Messiah. You want a lunchbox, you know? You've come back to get some food from me. And then he challenges them and he challenges us. He says, do not work for the food that perishes. He says, you are searching, you're laboring, you're going after the wrong thing. He says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, the Father has set his seal. Jesus says, there is better bread available that I have to offer you than that lunch you ate yesterday. But they pick up on what he's saying. Jesus says, work, you know, to receive this bread of eternal life. And they say, well, what should we do? They're like, we want some. He's still talking about bread and we want some of it. So what do we need to do to do the works of God? And he says this. He says, uh, they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered him, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. And they say, well, uh, what, what sign are you going to do so that we can believe that you're the one God sent? Uh, you know, um, I, how about, I, I don't know, why don't you provide us some more bread? <laughs> uh, they said, he's, they'd say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Do you hear the echoes of the Exodus story? This did take place around the time of Passover. They say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus, you know, uh, you, you look like you might be the prophet whom Moses spoke of, who was to come, the messianic king. Show us a sign. Moses provided bread from heaven. Why don't you give us a little bit more food? And again, I mean, they're looking for the, do you see their sights are set so low. They've gone to him, not to, not, I mean, they have, 
the embodiment of the God of Israel, the creator of all things, standing in front of their face. They are looking at him in the eyes and all they want is a little bit more bread. Jesus then said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus looks at them and he says, listen, the problem isn't simply that you're, 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 you're working for bread. I mean, all of us need a little bit of bread to get by, right? Jesus is not criticizing working for food. These are subsistence farmers. It was what they did. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, look, there is a bread that I have to offer that you don't have any idea just how satiating, how nourishing, how fulfilling this real bread that I have to give you is. And what Jesus is doing is he's contrasting bread, physical bread that nourishes our biological life with spiritual bread that nourishes our spiritual life. You know, in the, in the Greek language, there are two different words for, for life. There is the word bios, which refers to biological life. And then there's the word zoe, which, refer, which refers to life, the good life. Life that is enriching that is full of meaning, where you have security and fullness and joy. And Jesus says, you need to set your sight above biological life and the, 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 the food that simply nourishes you to get by the next day. And you got to set your eyes on something more significant and more important than that. And I just thought when I was reading this, you know, you know we're not subsistence farmers, most of us don't spend our day laboring for bread that perishes, but we do labor. Some of us are laboring, we are working to build up our reputation. We're constantly trying to engage in self-presentation activities on Instagram or through the clothes we wear or the car we drive or the kitchen we just remodeled to present to others a self and say, see, I'm worth something and we're working and we're working to, 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 to get this thing that, that ultimately will not satisfy. Some of us, you know, we don't work enough and some of us, what we're spending our days with is simply entertainment. We are just pacing the cage. We're watching another YouTube clip. We're binging another Netflix series. And Jesus says, there is so much more to life. Amen. You know, it was Jean-Paul Sartre, I've quoted this before, and I'm going to keep quoting it, who said, everything has been figured out except how to live. And Jesus said, I know all about life and I have come to bring you life. He says, I've come to bring you eternal life. And this, this phrase, eternal life, in the Gospel of John is a technical phrase, and it has a very particular meaning. For John, eternal life refers to the life of God. It is infinite life, eternal life, 
life that has no beginning and no end, the life that exists within the very source and ground of all life, namely the life that exists within the triune God. And this life is a life of unmatched beauty and love and joy. The eternal communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is this community, this eternal, infinite community of fullness and joy and life. God is just pulsating through in his very essence with love and being and existence. And Jesus says, there is that kind of bread that's available to you. You have access to connect to the life of God. So don't labor for the bread that perishes, but labor for the bread that endures to eternal life. And this is a bread you don't actually have to work for. The work is simply to open up your hands and receive and trust this gift of life. Well, after Jesus confronts the hungry crowds, then we move to act two where Jesus now unsettles. We could say Jesus intentionally unsettles and upsets the crowds. You know, Jesus is always doing this, isn't he? I mean, throughout the gospels, he just likes to unsettle us. And it's almost like he knows that when we are too comfortable, we're not listening. And so Jesus unsettles the crowds, he unsettles us. Look what happens next. Uh, the, the crowds hear this. He's talking about bread. They're still not quite getting it. And then they just look at him and they say, well, sir, give us this bread always. And then Jesus says, you want this bread. You're looking at the bread of eternal life. The very embodiment of the life of God is standing in flesh and blood before you. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And they hear this. They, they hear this talk about bread, manna, which came down from heaven. And Jesus says, I am the true bread, which has come down from heaven amongst your midst. And they start getting a little bit troubled by this. And they're like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean? You're the bread that came down from heaven? And they're thinking, are you greater than Moses? Moses led God's people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Are you better than Moses who led his people into experience this great redemption and a great freedom over Pharaoh and a great victory over Pharaoh and an entry into, and Jesus is as if he said, yes, I am greater than Moses. I am about ready to bring about a true and better exodus, defeating a more ominous Pharaoh and bringing you into a far better promised land, namely the life of God where you're gonna be satiated. And I didn't just come to give you bread from heaven. I came to be the bread of heaven, come down among you to bring that eternal, infinite fullness of life, which is God, into the middle of the world so that we can know this life. But they're troubled by this. They're like, what is this? So the Jews, verse 41, look at what it says down there. He says, so the Jews grumbled about him. Where have you heard that term, grumble, before? Back in the wilderness out of the camp, after they came out of Egypt, right? So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say that I have come down from heaven? You know, there's this moment in the uh, Passover meal in uh, the Jewish Seder where uh, the, the bread, the unleavened bread is held up and uh, at least in the Seder meal that our family has participated in, this phrase is, is said, they, they kind of hold it up and they look at this flat, you know, cracker-like thing that's so dry. And they're like, for the bread that's supposed to represent our freedom, you're awfully meager. You don't look very impressive. And it's as if they are saying, look, for the bread of heaven, the eternal life in our midst, we would have thought, there might be something a little bit more spectacular. Maybe a Messiah who came, you know, like Thor and Ragnarok, you know, he's got like the thing, this glory, come on. You know, like superhero quality, come down among us. But you're from Nazareth and we know your parents. We don't even know who your real dad was. And you're just this wandering, impoverished rabbi. How is this that you are bringing the eternal life among? Could this possibly be what the divine life would look like when he becomes flesh and walks among us, a poor, wandering rabbi from a no-name part of town? What kind of God is this? What kind of life is this? Notice Jesus' response, he doubles down. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. But this bread, which comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And they're still confused and they're getting, what do you mean you're going to give us your flesh? And, and, and a dispute, an argument uh, develops among them. And as they're confused, what does Jesus do? Jesus drills down deeper and he gets even more confusing. Look what he says. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's just weird, you know? So Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood. You have no life in you. But whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now these are Jews and they believe you don't eat something with the blood still in it. So Jesus is being troubling. And you think, what is that about? Listen, I don't think Jesus means, and I don't actually think they thought he meant, that uh, they're all to become cannibals, actually eating his flesh and drinking his blood. No, they know that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. They just don't know what he means in the metaphor. And it just seems so troubling. What do you mean, eat your flesh and drink your blood? But I think what Jesus is getting at is quite simply this. He's saying, look, if, if you want to eat bread, 
You know, you just can't shove this whole thing in your mouth, right? If you're going to consume this bread, you've got to first break it. It's got to be broken. And then if you are going to bring it into your taste buds to enjoy all of this rosemary, lemon, sourdough bread goodness, you've got to eat it. And it's good. It's probably a bad idea to stick bread in your mouth while you're speaking. But do you see what Jesus is getting at? He's saying, look, for you to experience the life of God, that infinite and eternal life, God must come among you in the flesh. And God in Christ's body must be broken so that you can be made whole and brought back into this life. But then it's not just enough for his body to be broken. His body must be consumed. In other words, you must bring the person of Jesus, who he is in all of his magnitude and beauty and goodness and love. You need to bring that into the very center of your being so that the love of Jesus the way of Jesus becomes the very thing that nourishes and sustains your life, even as bread does to your body. And this is what Jesus is claiming. But they don't get it, and they're just totally disturbed. And, and, and what happens next is just so tragic, because as we move into Act 3, we see the disciples hear and watch all of this troubling stuff about body and blood and what does this mean? Look what it says next. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? They're like, we don't get it. We don't understand. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he says, do you take offense at this? Does this offend you? That the only way you will know life is through the glad, self-giving, and sacrificial love of another? You will not earn your own way into favor with God. You do not have a natural connection with God through all of your meditation and all of your religious practices. You need God to come among you and to graciously make himself available to you. Does that offend you? Does it offend you that I claim in all of my weakness, in all of my way of life that is so counter to what everyone in the ancient world thought God would be like when he came among us. Does this offend you? Well, what will you say if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. And the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And the next verse is arguably the most tragic verse in the entire New Testament. It says, and after this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. You know, I read that verse and I was just thinking about so many people over the last couple of years. And I just thought this could be a description of what's happened in the church over the last couple of years. 
So many people who had been professing to be disciples of Jesus have walked away, never to return to church. And the reason why people have walked away, they're varied and they're many. And a lot of it is really understandable. Some people have seen the church caught up in political ideologies that have taken precedent over the centrality of the gospel of Jesus. Some people have watched another scandal, another Ravi Zacharias or Bill Hybels come out in the news, and they're just like, it's hypocrisy, it's dishonesty. And people have watched again and again just, just the, the dysfunction in the church and this, this disputatious and, and deservedly infamous group of church people who just are arguing about face masks and the stupidest things, and I'm just going to get up and walk away. And many, many, maybe, maybe some of you have been there. All of us at some point will be there where we just feel like, is this worth it? Should I follow still? Some of you are there right now. Maybe you've been hanging on like a thread just for, for a long time now, and you're close. You're just like, I, like, this is where these people are at. But what's interesting is that this group of people, so often I think people in our own day, they walk away from Jesus because of the hypocrisy and in spite of the real Jesus. But notice in our text, these people walk away from Jesus after they've seen the real Jesus. They're like, oh, this is what this is about. This is who you're claiming who you are. You're saying that it's not just enough for me to treat you as a vending machine who I go to like a cosmic genie, you know, a, a sugar daddy in the sky who I go to to, you know, ensure that I get my best life now, that my business, you know, goes on, that my marriage can last, that my kids can stand underneath my control, that I can keep, you know, good grades. And so whatever we go to God for, he says, look, none of that. I haven't come for that. I haven't come to give you your best life. Now, in fact, Jesus says, if you follow me, you will suffer tribulation. To be a follower of Jesus is to embrace a life of sacrifice and of suffering and of pain. To, to walk with Jesus in this present age as we await the age to come means to live in tension where the church is conflicted, where there's problem people around, where our own hearts are conflicted. Like there is no other way to walk with Jesus than in the midst of a world that is full of pain and suffering. Jesus says, I didn't come to give you your best life. Now I came to give you something better. I have come to bring the words of life to you. I have come to bring God to you. I have come so that through me, you can know wholeness and healing and life. Do you want that? Do you want this life with God? Jesus says, come to me and take me in. Trust me. Bring me into your life. Let me be the center that sustains you and keeps you going, and you will find life. And I think after this, what is arguably the most tragic verse in the New Testament is for me, what is among the most inspiring and the most beautiful statements in the entire New Testament. Look what it says next. Actually, not this next verse, but the one after that. Jesus, this is fascinating to me. 
Jesus, all of these crowds go away from Jesus. And I was just imagining preaching to you this morning and saying something offensive and then drilling it down a little bit further and just saying, you thought that offended you. Wait till we get to point two. Wait till we get to point three. I mean, this is Jesus, right? Like, he just like keeps, you know, keeps pushing it down. And if you would get up and walk out, like if, if basically all of you except for 12, I would say, you guys stay here for a second. Let me just go ch- chat with them. And I would go after the people walking away and say, no, I, maybe you misunderstood me. Let's come back and talk. You know, I like to be liked. I don't want to offend you and hurt you. And let's talk, let's... Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't go after the people who are walking away. He draws a line in the sand and he says, if you are walking away because you don't actually want me, you just want lunch, then it would be better for you to walk away. What's the point in staying here if we're going to play this religious game, if we're going to be in a transactional relationship with the creator of the universe? Right? So he draws this line in the sand and he turns away from these crowds of people who are walking away and he looks at all of us. He looks at the ones who have remained and he says, what about you? Are you also gonna walk away? And what Peter says, again, it's most, among, for me, the most inspiring and beautiful words in the entire New Testament If you were to ask me, why, in spite of everything, am I still a Christian? Why, in spite of the nonsense that goes on in the name of religion, am I still seeking to follow Jesus and love the people of Jesus and walk together with the people of Jesus? It would be this verse. You know, I've studied a lot of apologetics, but apologetics have just not kept me in the faith. I mean, they helped me. They strengthened me. But this is my answer. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? If I leave you, where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus, if I leave you, where else am I going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. What is it that keeps us in the church in the midst of all of the difficulty and challenges when people are, when your needs aren't being met? When it feels like you have unanswered prayers and God hasn't seemed to come through for you, where else are you going to go? This is the incarnate God come among us. And he carries in himself the eternal words of life. And in Jesus, I have found life. And I have found love. Where else am I going to go? You know, this group that stayed This group that surrendered themselves to Jesus and said, I want to take you in and I will nourish my life with your love and with your grace. I will find my life in walking in this countercultural, 
counterintuitive way of life that involves grace and holiness and hospitality and generosity and embodied love and forgiveness and reconciliation. I'm going to keep walking. And these disciples who said, I will not go away, this little band of peasants from the northeast, from the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, turned the world upside down. They created an entirely new social community where there was no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. And they, they placed at the very center of their ethical life, sacrificial love for neighbor. And, and they preached a gospel that raised the status of slaves and women. And that, 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 that was a good news for people who were overwhelmed with guilt and shame. And they started hospitals and orphanages and they turned the world upside down. And listen, this little band of disciples who committed themselves to Jesus became the largest social movement in the history of the world. And listen, it is not Christian consumers that change the world. It is disciples of Jesus. It is people who surrender to Jesus, who receive his love in their life and who embody this love in the world that transform communities and neighborhoods and homes. This is no small thing that you have been invited into. You have been invited to be a disciple of the creator of all things who has come flesh among us in Jesus. And so let's not be consumers. Let's be followers, amen? Father, we come to you now. And a lot of us come with conflicted hearts, with unbelief, with questions. And many of us today, here and now, we wanna draw a line in the sand. And we wanna say, Jesus, we are yours. You alone have the words of eternal life. We want to be yours forever and we don't want you because you do some things for us and you make our life a little bit better or you help us win our elections or get promotions at work. We come to you, Lord Jesus, because you are the risen son of the living God. And we trust ourselves to you. Nourish us now afresh as we share in this practice. Amen.